0: In the last couple of years, the systemic management of renal cell cancer has gone from a wasteland of options to a new world of pathways and interventions. I met with Dr. Michael Adkins for his take on this molecular revolution, and he began our conversation by commenting on the biology of the critical von Hippel-Lindau gene.
1: There's been a really a sea change or a revolution in our understanding of the biology of renal cancer, and it's a good example of how we can use biology to develop new therapies. So what's been discovered is that about 60 to 70 percent of clear cell renal cancers have mutations in the von Hippel-Lindau gene. And the von Hippel-Lindau gene is a tumor suppressor gene, and so when it's lost, it leads to overexpression of hypoxia-inducible factor because it can no longer be degraded by the proteasome. And overexpression of hypoxia-inducible factor leads to increased production of downstream mediators of response to hypoxia. You get a pseudo-hypoxic situation in the cancer, despite the fact that it's exposed to normal oxygen. And what you see is overexpression of vascular endothelial growth factor, platelet-derived growth factor, TGF alpha, TGF beta, as well as other factors, such as carbonic anhydrase 9 or CXCR4, that may be involved in tumor angiogenesis and tumor growth. And so some of the new therapies that have been developed and are particularly showing activity in renal cancer are those that target the vascular endothelial growth factor pathway, which leads to inhibition of angiogenesis and, surprisingly, tumor shrinkage or, in most cases, a delay in progression. The things that have inhibited the epidermal growth factor pathway have been less promising in the recent clinical trials, but another pathway has emerged, and we're still trying to sort out why that has a role in renal cancer, and that's the TOR pathway. And the TOR pathway is a pathway inside the tumor cell that is controlled by a PI3 kinase, AKT, on the way to TOR. And we think that about 50 to 60 percent of renal cancers have a methylation leading to decreased expression of P10, which is another tumor suppressor gene, and a loss of P10 leads to activation of AKT and activation of TOR, which leads to cell proliferation and angiogenesis. And we think both of those factors are important to kidney cancer growth, and inhibiting TOR through some of the new drugs also leads to prolonged survival, tumor shrinkage, and delays in recurrence. Can
0: you talk a little bit more about the VEGF pathway, pathways, and how they interrelate to the TOR pathway?
1: Sure. The relationship between TOR and VEGF is probably the one that's most studied. And basically, when you block TOR, you block protein synthesis. And one of the proteins downstream of TOR that synthesis or translation is inhibited is HIF. And so... When a TOR is active, HIF is stabilized, and so not only is it not degraded, but the synthesis is increased, and if you block TOR, you can decrease the amount of HIF that's made.
0: Is there any sort of intuitive connection between these biologic alterations that are seen with renal cell and the purported etiologic agents, and what are the etiologic agents, and is there any potential connection to what you're seeing in the cell?
1: Well, that's a great question, Neil. And I think there's very little that's been done about that. We've thought about this a little bit. The things that have been associated with renal cancer development, aside from the various genetic things that have been well characterized now, are things like smoking, things like exposure to hydrocarbons that you would get in the dry cleaning business. And we're not sure how those things actually relate to the VHL mutation, or potentially to activation of the TOR-AKT pathway. I think the only one that's potentially understood is, and we still need a lot more research in this situation, is papillary renal cancer that occurs in dialysis. And that's, there's a disease that develops in people on long-term dialysis called polycystic kidney disease of dialysis, and about a third of those patients will develop papillary renal cancer and because papillary renal cancer appears to be driven in its hereditary form by hepatocyte growth factor, which binds to the CMET receptor, which is seen on papillary renal cancer cells to be frequently mutated, it's thought that in a setting of lack of kidney function, there's a drive towards making hepatocyte growth factor, which stimulates the cyst formation and leads to a situation where you're more likely to get a mutation turning into a papillary renal cancer, but that's a rare event compared to the regular papillary renal cancers, let alone the clear cell renal cancers that we typically see sporadically.
0: That's really fascinating. What fraction of patients on dialysis get both the cysts as well as the papillary cancers?
1: It's related to how long they're on dialysis, and the cysts can develop in 10 to 20% of patients, and I think up to a third of the people who develop the cysts over time can develop cancers.
0: Interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about particularly the agents that are clinically available and how they fit into this biologic pathway and what new agents are coming along and, and also the whole concept of you know combining biologics, which we're seeing in a bunch of tumors now?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, renal cancer is unique in that it appears to be the one solid tumor that is directly sensitive to anti-angiogenic or anti-VEGF pathways when used as a single agent. The other cancers where drugs like Avastin have shown activity have all been in combination with chemotherapy, which brings into play a lot of other mechanisms. When we talk about renal cancer being sensitive to these agents as single agents, we think the reason is that kidney cancer has grown up in a sea of VEGF and hasn't had to work real hard to develop other means of getting a blood supply. And so it's very dependent on VEGF. And when you give a drug that either binds VEGF, like bevacizumab, or a drug that blocks the receptor, like suinitinib or serafinib, you see almost immediate effects We can talk about later what happens after the cancer realizes it needs to come up with another blood supply and then figures out a way of getting around this. But you see almost immediate effects when you hit the VEGF pathway with these various drugs, and I think that's a unique situation in kidney cancer that's directly related to its biology. So what are the drugs? The two that have recently been approved in the past year and a half are serafinib, which is a oral multi-kinase inhibitor that inhibits RAF within the tumor cells and the RAF kinase pathway, as well as VEGFR2 within the endothelial cells. And another drug that's a little bit more potent in terms of inhibiting VEGF receptor and also inhibits PDGF and CKIT called These two drugs, when given to patients with advanced renal cancer, cause tumor shrinkage in 60 to 80% of patients and delay time to progression relative to control therapy. The sunitinib appears to actually cause enough tumor shrinkage to have partial responses defined in up to 40% of patients, while serafinib produces actually defined responses in about 10% of patients. But the patients who have less than their partial response, same number, appear to have tumor shrinkage as with sunitinib.
0: Again, to the neophytes out there like me, which I have a feeling is a lot of people trying to understand all this stuff. In terms of these two agents, is everything they do related to a TK function?
1: It appears that these are tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and most of their activity is probably related to that. I think it's important to note that a lot of different and this is relevant to combination therapy and to the effects of these drugs, a lot of different receptors have tyrosine kinases on them. And so these drugs are dirty drugs. They not only inhibit VEGFR2, which we think is responsible for most of its activity, but they also inhibit other kinases, including those that we don't even know about, which may contribute to their activity or might contribute to their toxicity or may even produce countervailing effects that inhibit their activity, and that's stuff that has to be sorted out. Perhaps the purest of the drugs in terms of inhibiting the VEGF pathway, therefore, is bevacizumab, which just binds the ligand, and it does so with a lot of specificity and doesn't have much in the way of, quote, off-target effects. And bevacizumab has not been as well studied in renal cancer as sunitinib and serafinib The initial studies were small and the data was not sufficient to be brought forward to the FDA for licensing, but we'll see in the next two years two large phase three trials coming out, one that will be presented at the 2007 ASCO meeting from the European investigators that looks at combination of bevacizumab and interferon compared to interferon alone in advanced renal cancer, and another one that's a placebo-controlled trial with a progression-free survival endpoint, and another one that hopefully will be presented in 2008 ASCO from the United States Intergroup, looking at the same design except no placebo and an overall survival endpoint.
0: What about trials looking at bevacizumab alone?
1: the initial trials, and I think this is a trial that sort of got people excited about inhibiting the VEGF pathway in renal cancer, and I think the results of this trial, even though they were published in the New England Journal, were underappreciated by a lot of people in the field as they got excited about the oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors was a study done by Jim Yang at the NCI surgery branch that took patients who had previously received interleukin-2 and had disease progression and randomized them to either placebo low-dose bevacizumab or high-dose bevacizumab. And in about 100 patients, about 35 or so per arm, there was a significant prolongation in time to progression for the high-dose bevacizumab arm compared to the placebo arm. And about 10% of patients exhibited true partial responses. And that, I think, showed not only that bevacizumab had activity, but inhibiting this pathway would be useful in renal cancer. People didn't explore that enough because the response rate was lower than probably is actually accurate. And the time to progression used the older WHO criteria. And so it was shorter It's actually in a stricter version of the old WHO criteria, and so it was shorter than would have actually been seen if the same criteria were used as have been used for the serafinib and sinitinib trials. We now know from first-line trials with bevacizumab and a trial that was performed comparing the combination of bevacizumab and erlotinib to bevacizumab and placebo that the median time to progression for bevacizumab alone is about eight and a half to nine months, and that somewhere around 15% of patients will get tumor shrinkage.
0: You were talking about the mechanism of action of bevacizumab, but at least in breast cancer, I've seen some research looking at VEGF receptors on the cell and speculating that maybe there's a direct effect of bevacizumab. Has that been looked at in renal cancer?
1: It's been looked at only briefly. There's not too much evidence that There's a lot of VEGF receptors on the tumor cells, and when you look at in the animal models and you look at actual histology, what you see very quickly is a loss of vasculature within a couple of days even after bevacizumab is administered. So it's quite clear that at least the initial target is the blood vessel.
0: Now, what about so-called VEGF trap? What is it, and sort of where does it fit into this biology?
1: VEGF trap is a manufactured molecule that involves two components of the VEGF receptor linked to an IgG antibody and supposedly is 10 times more potent in binding VEGF than bevacizumab and potentially, therefore, could be a better angiogenic inhibitor. For reasons that I'm not privy to, the studies with this agent have been incredibly protracted and as far as I know, there's no pivotal trial even been launched with that agent in renal cancer as yet. And the field is getting more and more crowded, so it'll be harder and harder to do that trial over time.
0: But it sounds like a similar mechanism of action as BEV.
1: Binding VEGF in the circulation.
0: Now, what about temsirolimus? Where does that fit in the biology?
1: So temsirolimus is a blocker of TOR. And it's a ester of rapamycin, which is an approved drug that's an immunosuppressive agent. Temsurimus blocks TOR. It has clinical activity in renal cancer as shown in the initial phase two trials published a few years ago. It causes tumor shrinkage in about 35% of patients with true partial responses in 7 to 10% of patients, even at relatively low doses, appear here to be adequate to block the pathway and produce clinical effects, and at least in the initial studies, it was the investigator's experience, and this was borne out by some, not completely scientific, but still potentially hypothesis-generating observations that suggested the people who benefited the most from tensoralimus were those who had more aggressive tumors and poor prognostic factors, as defined by the Memorial Sloan-Kettering database and model. And so that led to a phase retrial of tensoralimus at its MTD dose alone, at a reduced dose in combination with interferon, versus interferon alone in an intermediate-to-poor-risk population. That data was presented at ASCO last year, and it showed that temsirolimus alone was able to produce a 50% prolongation of survival in this poor-risk population, as well as doubling the time to progression. I think that will ultimately lead to this drug being approved for treatment of advanced renal cancer. But defining which population should receive this drug versus some of the VEGF-directed pathway drugs is something that is work for the future.
0: Does it make sort of intuitive sense that an agent like that might be more effective in more aggressive tumors? Is the biology different?
1: It does make sense. There's a lot of data coming out that suggests that activation of the AKT and TOR pathway in renal cancer is associated with poor prognosis. Is it
0: a later event, or not necessarily?
1: We don't know the timing of it. It's possible that there are actually two different populations of patients, those who have the etiology of their disease being VHL mutation, HIF and VEGF pathway driven, and another group that has their renal cancer developed through P10 methylation, and various things that activate TOR and HIF stabilization through that mechanism, and that therefore there might be two populations of tumors, and that one approach may work better in one population, the other approach in the other. But we're trying to sort all that out by studying tumors that we can collect prior to therapy and seeing if their expression of various markers predict for benefit. One thing relevant in this approach is that our preliminary data from looking at the literally couple of dozen samples that we were able to get from the limus trial seems to indicate that those patients who benefit most from limus are those whose tumors express either phospho-AKT, which is above TOR in the pathway, or phospho-S6 at high levels, which is below TOR in the pathway, seeming to indicate that there's a relationship between not only clinical behavior but the biology, the tumor, and those that benefit from a treatment that blocks the activated pathway. We need more information in that regard.
0: What do we know about what happens as these tumors are exposed to agents? You mentioned that before in terms of how it affects the biology. You get second, third, and fourth line therapy.
1: This is a major area of research. I think we could create an algorithm right now that talks about how you would approach a patient with renal cancer that involves the standard therapy being sunitinib with a subset of patients maybe still being appropriate for immunotherapy that we're in the process of defining. And based on the first-line studies presented at ASCO comparing TKIs to interferon, it appears that sunitinib would be the most appropriate first-line therapy based on evidence and that serafinib may have its best potential at least confirmed activity in patients whose disease has progressed following cytokines but we really don't have any idea what the appropriate treatment is for people whose disease progresses after either sinitinib or serafinib and we're not sure whether being on those therapies actually in some ways selects for a different biology so There is some concern that when you stop these agents, there's higher circulating VEGF that is no longer blocked. And at least for a short period of time, the disease progresses more quickly. How long it takes for things to go back to equilibrium and whether that actually happens is something that we need to investigate. It's curious that despite the clear benefit of Zinitinib and Zorafinib when compared to placebo in delaying time to progression, there's no data yet that confirms a role for them in actually prolonging survival. And that may be in part because of crossover or it may be in part because the Survival after these agents is actually less than it might have been if patients hadn't been exposed to those agents. So we really need to sort out what is driving the tumors as they become resistant to these VEGF receptor blockers. It's our view that that is an angiogenic escape mechanism, and we're spending a lot of time trying to identify the other proangiogenic factors that could drive blood vessel development when the VEGF receptor pathway is blocked and then potentially using that particular data to hopefully select for drugs that block those driving factors and potentially either use sequential therapy or combinations therapy to try to delay the time to progression or minimize the rate in which the disease progresses after it progresses.
0: In terms of the lack of survival, in addition to the explanations or possible explanations you just mentioned, were the trials powered adequately that you should have been able to see it if it were there?
1: Yes. The trials were very large trials. The relapse-free survival endpoints had many zeros after the decimal point in the p-value, and they were big enough to see a survival benefit, but the survival endpoints have been muddied by a lot of factors.
0: Just to complete the biology sort of picture, can you bring in where immunotherapy and interleukin fits in, and again, potential connections between that and the angiogenic pathways and torrent pathway? Sure.
1: Interleukin-2 and, to some extent, interferon have been the traditional therapies for renal cancer before the targeted therapies, and interferon has been shown to produce tumor shrinkage in about 10 to 15% of patients. Median time to progression, we're finding from recent studies, is probably about five months, and in meta-analyses, it's been associated with an improved survival of about three months compared to non-interferon-containing controls. Interleukin-2, particularly high-dose interleukin-2, is associated with response rates in modern past-decade studies of about 20 to 25%, with about half of those responses being complete or durable. And it's clear that the high-dose interleukin-2 is required in order to produce that higher response rate and the durable responses. The real question is, who are the patients who benefit from interleukin 2 because it's an aggressive toxic therapy that has curative potential? And can we identify those patients and restrict this therapy to those who are most likely to benefit, turning a treatment that's of great benefit for a very small population? into a treatment that helps the majority of patients who receive it. And there's some data to suggest that things like well-differentiated tumors, those that express VHL or HIF-driven proteins such as carbonic anhydrase-9 are far more likely to respond to interleukin-2 than tumors that have low levels of expression of those proteins.
0: What do we know about the mechanism of action of interleukin and interferon?
1: Interleukin-2 is an immunotherapy. It activates the immune system to recognize and destroy tumor cells. I believe, at least for interleukin-2, the mechanism of the action is an autoimmune reaction against the tumor. It's not an antiangiogenic action, and it's not a non-specific immune reaction. And what in,
0: specifically in, is it reacting against?
1: We don't know. And It would be nice to be able to sort out what antigen is being recognized, but I think it's different for different tumors. There's only been a few studies that have sort of identified tumor-associated antigens that T cells are reactive against in renal cancer, in contrast to what we've seen in melanoma, where it's been easier to identify tumor-associated antigens. I think there are tumors that have an immunosuppressive milieu, potentially those that are driven by P10 loss and AKT and TOR that are unlikely to respond to immunotherapy. They may have high expression of things like B7H1, which serves as barbed wire around the cancer to prevent an activated immune system from getting there and killing the cells. Getting back to the mechanism of interferon, that's multifactorial. There's some immune activation, but interferon is also anti-proliferative and also anti-angiogenic, and I believe that all of those things play a role in this activity. There's obviously
0: a lot of interest in combining biologics in a bunch of different tumors. And in a way, when you think about it, even though it's hitting, quote, different parts of pathways, it almost reminds me a little bit about combining chemo agents. It's, you know, just kind of putting things together. Are there any combinations here that make more biologic sense to you?
1: There are three approaches that people have explored to combination therapy in renal cancer. One is trying to combine targeted agents, be they targeted against the tumor or the blood vessel, with immunotherapy. Another is combining targeted agents that are vertical combinations that hit a particular pathway like the VEGF pathway at two different sites, such as binding the ligand and inhibiting the receptor simultaneously. And the third approach is what we call a horizontal blockade, where you inhibit two different pathways or parallel pathways. So the studies that have looked at combinations of targeted agents and immunotherapy included some studies which were presented at ASCO last year and will be published shortly looking at serafinib in combination with interferon, which showed encouraging results of 30% response rates, not more than one would expect from the standpoint of toxicity. And it seems at least that you can combine those two without any negative consequences. And it's possible, at least in those two studies, there was 5 or 10% of patients who had complete responses. So it's possible you might get the complete and durable response benefits of immunotherapy with the tumor shrinkage benefits of VEGF receptor therapy. We will see similar type of data hopefully coming out at ASCO this year in the bevacizumab plus interferon combinations, which is another approach for combining targeted agent with immunotherapy, and our group is actively investigating combinations of bevacizumab with high-dose interleukin-2, and that data is still maturing. We spent a lot of time looking at the vertical inhibition of the VEGF pathway, and this has proved much more difficult than we anticipated. The theory behind this is when you block the receptor, you make the cells hypoxic, and you get increases in circulating VEGF, which potentially could drive the angiogenesis if your receptor isn't completely blocked. So hopefully binding that circulating VEGF might create a better block on that pathway.
0: Is that what you were referring to before when you talked about escape with the TKIs?
1: That's one mechanism of escape, although we don't think that that's as important as some of the other mechanisms. Such as? Driving HIF up and some of the other downstream targets of HIF or other things that might be non-VEGF pathway-mediated promoters of angiogenesis, such as things like FGF, which has been shown in a Doug Hanahan model to potentially drive escape in a pancreatic tumor and things like potentially interleukinate or angiopoietin 2, which may be upregulated in renal cancer when the VEGF receptor is blocked. So getting back to the vertical pathway inhibition, we found that when you combine serafinib and bevacizumab, that you see more potent activity than with either alone. I think even synergistic activity with responses seen in close to 50% of patients. But the toxicity is also synergistic. We see much more toxicity than we see with either agent alone, and have had to reduce the dose of each agent significantly in order to find a tolerable dose. What specific problems? We see more hypertension. We see more serafinib-related side effects, such as rash and hand-foot syndrome. There's a lot of fatigue. There's a lot of weight loss and anorexia. Seems
0: kind of surprising.
1: We were very surprised. What do you think going on? Well, I think that you need a little bit of edge, F probably to maintain your blood pressure at a normal level. And I think the toxicity on things like the GI tract and the skin are much more enhanced when you put these agents together. We initially didn't have pharmacokinetics as part of our phase one trial. So now we're going back and seeing whether this is a pharmacodynamic effect or a pharmacokinetic effect. I believe it's a pharmacodynamic effect, and it shows you that there's a limit to how well you can inhibit that pathway without getting toxicity. So... I think similar things, that I haven't seen this exactly, are being observed with the sunitinib and bevacizumab combinations. And so we're a little bit soured on the possibility of being safely able to give vertical VEGF receptor blockade. And I think with regard to advances in that pathway inhibition, I think we're more likely to see them from drugs that are more specific and selective in inhibiting that pathway rather than from combinations of dirty drugs that have off-target effects that might be responsible for toxicities. I think the more promising approach is the horizontal blockade combination therapy, where you might inhibit two pathways at the same time, for example, inhibiting the TOR pathway and the Vegf pathway together. And there's promising results, and uh, no additive toxicity seen by combining temsirolimus and bevacizumab. And I think we're all very interested in exploring that further in phase two trials. And there's also studies that have been launched looking at serafinib and temsirolimus and sunitinib and temsirolimus that hopefully will also show benefits. And there's a couple of reasons why that combination is of interest. It has to do with the fact that inhibiting TOR not only inhibits proliferation within the tumor cell, but it also inhibits the HIF stabilization. And so if increase in HIF is part of the mechanism of resistance to VEGF receptor blockade, you might potentially block that compensatory reaction to some extent by adding a TOR inhibitor. So we're excited about that combination. There'll be trials that are being launched within the cooperative group and industry-sponsored trials in the near future to explore that further. What I think is likely the most promising approach, though, is a variation of a horizontal blockade, which is looking at, as I was mentioning before, the mechanism of angiogenic escape and trying to combine molecules that inhibit that mechanism of escape with VEGF receptor blockers.
0: So you believe, then, that it's the VEGF inhibition that they keep in terms of anti-tumor effect?
1: That's the common thread for all the drugs that are showing activity that, as part of their mechanism, is inhibiting the VEGF receptor. Any drug that inhibits that pathway appears to have a similar pattern of tumor shrinkage and a similar sort of time-to-progression profile.
0: So the golden question in terms of, it seems like almost every tumor now, is where are we in terms of developing clinical predictors or response to these different agents and how long do you think it will be before we can actually have that type of assay or predictability in clinical practice?
1: Well, I'm very optimistic about that in renal cancer because we understand a lot about the different types of renal cancers. We have a lot of tumors stored away, there's been expression profiling done to see what genes are expressed. We understand the VHL mutation, and we can do VHL genotyping. There are immunohistochemical assays that can study for HIF and some of its downstream consequences. So we can pretty readily, based on histology, immunohistochemistry, and potentially genotyping and expression profiling, be able to categorize renal cancers into subcategories, and if we have those specimens collected in the context of these large trials that are being going on we 'll be able to sort out which are the patients who appear to benefit from a particular drug versus others and we 've made a lot of progress in this regard already. I think we know to some extent needs to be validated prospectively the type of tumors that benefit from immunotherapy and We're starting to see similar data coming up with the VEGF receptor blockers, and there's already data to suggest that proteins that signify activation of the TOR pathway are potentially important predictors of patients who will benefit from TOR inhibitors. So I think we're making progress in that regard, and we have a real potential to sort this out and move towards personalized medicine in renal cancer, probably more so than a lot of other tumors where the biology is not as well understood.
0: What do we know about sequential responses to these different agents, particularly serafinib and sunitinib, but the whole spectrum of the agents involved?
1: We know very little. There's a lot of anecdotal and not really controlled sort of observational studies that are just sort of coming out. It appears in what was a formal study that sunitinib has activity... In patients whose disease has progressed after bevacizumab, you may see tumor shrinkage in close to the same number of patients, although not as robust and not for as long. But it's also, I think, coming out that if you take a little bit of break and start the same agent again or increase the dose of the same agent, you can see a little bit of a response again. So the resistance is plastic in some regard. It's physiologic Resistance mechanism that if you give a patient a little bit of a break from that particular agent, you might be able to get a little benefit again, or just by increasing the dose, you might be able to get a little bit of benefit. And so I believe we'll see activity in serafinib after sinitinib failures and sinitinib after serafinib failures. The real question is is that more than you would see if you just put them back on the same agent after giving them a little bit of a break? Where I think the most potential for seeing sequential activity is right now by looking at TOR inhibitors in tumors that have become refractory to cenitinib or serafinib. And those studies are actually ongoing, big industry-sponsored trials that will look at TOR inhibition versus placebo or addition of a TOR inhibitor versus switching to a TOR inhibitor in patients who progress on a VEGF receptor TKI.
0: In terms of the TKIs, am I correct in saying there clearly have been sequential responses reported in series that are not inconsequential?
1: Well, I think this is anecdotal data. The Cleveland Clinic has looked at their patient population and seen that some people have responded to sunitinib who have progressed after serafinib and vice versa. And the response rates or the tumor shrinkage rates may be in the 10 or 15% range. And whether they actually make a difference for the time to progression or the survival of those patients is unknown. You need a formal study in order to address that.
0: But, I mean, if the mechanism of action is the same, essentially, at least the key mechanism of action, why would you see any responses?
1: Well, because the target is not necessarily the cancer cell. The target is a normal structure, being the endothelial cell, and the endothelial cell doesn't mutate or change in response to selective pressures the way a tumor cell might. What happens is the tumor cell, under the selective pressure of not having a blood supply, secretes other factors that cause the blood supply, the endothelial cell, to regrow, and blood supply to regrow in a non-VEGF-dependent fashion. So when you take away that selective pressure, the question is, what happens? And it's possible that in the setting of a tumor cell now making VEGF again, that that may become the dominant force in driving the endothelial cell proliferation again. And therefore, when you give a TKI that blocks VEGF, you may see a second effect. But you would predict that the time to developing that resistance mechanism would be a lot shorter in that setting because it was already pre in the tumor cell from the prior exposure to those agents.
0: Wow, interesting. Let's kind of getting a little bit away from the fascinating biology and more towards the clinical application. Can you talk about what we know about the spectrum of side effects with these agents?
1: Sure. Well, they're oral agents and they're reasonably well tolerated in an outpatient setting, The VEGF pathway blockers have a base set of side effects that I think are emblematic of blocking the VEGF pathway, which include hypertension as a major component, proteinuria as a potential component. The TKIs are dirty drugs, so they hit other pathways, and they cause fatigue, potentially skin rash, potentially something called a hand-foot syndrome, and potentially diarrhea, and mucositis.
0: Are these all direct toxic effects on the end tissue, so to speak?
1: Well, I think the mechanism most likely for the hand-foot syndrome, and I think also for the mucositis that develops, is that there's a lot of ongoing tissue repair to trauma that's subclinical. And if you inhibit the repair by inhibiting development of new blood supplies, you start seeing ulcers or problems in pressure points and so the hands and the feet it's interesting that these toxicities are most commonly seen in people who are on their feet a lot or use their hands a lot so they're particularly pernicious in that regard and the mucositis and oral problems are more common in people who talk really a lot so it's actually
0: been looked at or is it sort of an uh, that, clinical observation those are
1: clinical observations people
0: who talk a lot that's wild <laughs> So, do you think it's fundamentally different than, let's say, the hand, foot, syndrome and the floor perimidines?
1: I don't know enough about that to say for sure, but I think it is what you I actually so see
0: that yeah. you're describing. Are is different
1: problems on the pressure points of the feet and the hands, as opposed think- to a sort of a more diffuse rash that you see with five FU. Right. That's a concern because the people who least can afford to have those side effects are the ones that are more likely to get them. So, the GI toxicity, particularly what we see with the combination of bevacizumab and serafinib, is fascinating and requires a lot of... um, What
0: specifically?
1: Well, the amount of weight loss that we see...
0: nausea, lack of appetite type GI toxicity?
1: Weight loss, even in the setting of people who are eating, you can lose 5 or 10 pounds in a week and just keep on going. And they're eating... Yes, with that combination. What do you think's going on? Well, I think the VEGF receptor is much more important to food absorption or to epithelial cell survival than we anticipated. And I assume it's some sort of malabsorption that's happening and that's responsible for some of the diarrhea, but it has not been formally investigated. And who knows, there may be other uses for these drugs if the other toxicities can be dealt with from, that could come out of exploring that mechanism further.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the issue of dose in these agents and whether there's a role for dose escalation? I know you've looked into that.
1: Yeah. Well, in the initial studies, it appeared that you needed to get up to whatever the doses that are being used in order to get the most effect. Sunitna, they felt they wanted to give 50 milligram dose, but in order to have people tolerate that, they needed a two-week break. So it's a dose-intensive with a break to recover from the toxicity. Serafinib is a a twice-a-day drug, 400 BID is the standard dose, but without a break. There's data, this is all comparing phase 2 trial data, which is dangerous, that suggests when you lower the dose of sunitinib to 37.5, which now makes it tolerable continuously, you don't see the... 40% response rate anymore. The response rates are closer to 15 to 20%. Whether that's real or just a basis of small trials is hard to sort out. But there's also data that will be coming out at ASCO this year with escalating the dose of serafinib, which seems to suggest, and this needs to be validated in other centers, that if you can get away with increasing the dose of serafinib, you might increase the response rates closer to what is potentially seen with synitinib. Is that something
0: you do in your own practice outside of a trial setting?
1: Well, we often, if people are tolerating the drug but their disease is not shrinking or progressing, try to increase the dose. And you can get away with that in people who are tolerating serapinib. Whether that's something that is truly better for everybody or just in individual patients is something that is unknown. But I think there's been data from studies which have involved a dose escalation at time of progression that seem to indicate when you increase the dose of serafinib from 400 BID to 600 BID, you may get, once again, some additional tumor shrinkage.
0: Based on your own clinical experience as well as clinical research literature, what do you think the sort of qualitative and quantitative differences are in the side effects of these two agents in the schedules and doses that they're being given right now?
1: Sure. Between synitinib and serafinib? Mm -hmm. Well, I think sinitinib produces more fatigue and produces more problems with blood counts and more problems with diarrhea and has also been shown to produce hypothyroidism and, in a small number of patients, cardiac effects, including decreases in injection fraction. Serafinib is more likely to produce rash, hand-foot syndrome, and I think less likely to produce fatigue although i think there's been no direct formal comparison between the two drugs to know how exactly they compare from a toxicity standpoint and the advin trial which involves serafinib, sunitinib and a placebo will be a good opportunity if nothing else to see the difference in toxicity of those two agents in patients who don't have disease-related symptoms.
0: Yeah, That's going to be fascinating. In terms of sort of overall quality of life, in terms of fraction of patients where you have a significant problem of questions and whether you should continue it or switch or whatever, can you compare the two drugs in terms of how often you run into problems?
1: I think that it's really hard to make that comparison. I think in both drugs, the toxicities may be a little bit more than we're seeing in the actual clinical trials, because probably better patients have gone on those trials than we typically see in practice. I think there are some patients who can't tolerate serafinib, who can tolerate sinitinib, and vice versa, sinitinib, serafinib. And so what we're seeing, and I'm not sure that this is necessarily good, is that physicians in practice may start with one drug, and if the patients aren't tolerating it, they may switch to another drug. And if they don't tolerate that, they may stop altogether or switch to a third drug. We don't know whether that's beneficial. We don't know whether you need to take a break before you switch between those drugs. There are some concerns in this whole process that I would just put out there as words of caution, in people taking bevacizumab the half-life is very long. I've mentioned already that there's hmm. enhanced toxicity for say. combining bevacizumab and serafinib and potentially sunitinib. And it takes 3 weeks or so for a half-life of bevacizumab, so if you're switching from bevacizumab to serafinib or sunitinib, you've got to wait a long time before you add the standard dose of those other drugs because otherwise you run the risk of creating additive toxicity from a combination that you hadn't anticipated you were actually giving a combination. Interesting. How long do you have to wait? I would say you need to wait a month after Bevacizumab. The other thing which I think is also very important to point out, there is no data that supports either the activity or the safety of high-dose interleukin 2 following serafinib or sunitinib. And there's potential reason to think that the disease may be growing faster, may have selected for resistance, TOR-driven pathway after treatment, and they may be less likely to respond to immunotherapy than they would have been if you had treated them up front. And there's also anecdotal data, but something that we're concerned about, that if you start interleukin-2 too soon after these other agents, that some of the effects on the heart and stuff may make it harder for the patient to be able to tolerate interleukin-2 therapy. So in my view, when you're seeing a patient with renal cancer, the decision about what you give first is the most important decision you make. And I still feel that, at least based on All the data we know that the high-dose interleukin-2 is the only drug with curative potential. And if you're the right patient and can get that agent, you increase the chances for long-term benefit for your patient if you start with interleukin-2 and go to the VEGF receptor blockade in patients who either aren't candidates for interleukin-2 or whose disease has progressed after that.
0: Who are the right patients for interleukin
1: Well, they have to have good cardiac and kidney function and lung function, and they have to have clear cell tumors that are predominantly alveolar and likely those that are VHL mutations and HIF-driven, CA9-driven, high-expressing tumors. One has to validate that particular model in order to make the CA9 assay be clinically usable, and we're in the process of doing what we call the SELECT trial to confirm that selection criteria. And if we can, I think we'll be able to make the now only available for experimental purposes, the CA9 antibody, which is now only available for experimental purposes, available for clinical decision-making.
0: Right now, what kind of cure rate do you think you could ascribe to well-selected patients?
1: I think you could anticipate, based on our data, looking retrospectively at the population has the selection characteristics that we'd like to select for. Response rates in the 40 to 50% range and somewhere in the 15 to 25% having long-term responses.
0: Just to sort of try to get at another angle in terms of side effects with the TKIs, what fraction of patients roughly just sort of sail through it, no problem, no major problems?
1: About half. And that I think it's important to note for practicing physicians that you can't just put people on these drugs send them home, and have them come back in four weeks for their next prescription. They're going to have problems with their blood pressure. They're going to have problems with their skin. There are a lot of things that they need to do in order to reduce those problems. They need to be checking their blood pressure regularly, modifying their antihypertensive regimen. They need to be applying various creams and stuff to deal with uh, skin reactions. They need to be very careful about trauma to their hands and feet and inside their mouth because they're not going to heal as well. And it takes a while before you're sure that the patient's on the right dose and on the right supportive medications that you can then see them at less frequent intervals. So it's very important if you want to optimize the effects of this treatment and keep your patients on these drugs so that they can get the optimal benefit to make sure you deal very carefully with managing the toxicities early on. Can you go through more
0: specifically what you say to patients specifically about the things that you just talked about in terms of their hands, both preventively and also mucosa and therapeutically?
1: Sure. Well, a lot of this is done by our nurses, and there are also handouts that are now being provided by the companies that support these things, which go through stuff in detail. But we want our patients to get a blood pressure cuff, check their blood pressure daily, contact us if their diastolic blood pressure is getting over 90, if their systolic blood pressure is getting over 140. We will adjust their antihypertensive medicines or add them or increase them if that's the case. We want them to get some sort of cream for their hands and their feet. What we've used is an utter cream for something called bag bomb or something like that that's used for cows in the milking process and want them to apply that regularly to their hands and feet. We'd like think, them to be...
0: You do that preventively.
1: Preventively or at the first sign of any symptoms. We'd like them to not be doing things that cause a lot of trauma to their hands and feet or to cut back on running or a lot of working with their hands to try to reduce it until we see whether that's going to be a problem and to contact us at the first sign of getting problems with their hands and feet so that we could potentially increase the intensity of the regimen. We give them anti-diarrhea medications. Preventively uh, or
0: therapeutically?
1: We give them the medications and tell them to take them if they have signs of loose stools. So therapeutically, but very early on, therapeutic, we also...
0: What do you give them Exactly.
1: Well, we would give them modium or Lamoto and things like that. I think we're cautioning them about being careful when they're brushing their teeth not to cause trauma inside the mouth. And if they're having problems with ulcers inside the mouth, that they would contact us and there are rinses and things like that that can help protect them. We think that finding out about these toxicities early, particularly with serafinib and holding therapy for Three or four days is enough to allow them to resolve, and then you can resume treatment, and oftentimes they're less frequent when you resume treatment. But if you continue treatment while patients are experiencing these toxicities, you can very quickly turn something that may be grade 1 or grade 2 into something that's grade 3 and may take a long time before the side effects resolve enough, then you can restart the therapy.
0: What about side effects and complications with temsoralinus?
1: Sure. Temsoralinus is an intravenous drug given once a week. And the major side effects that we've seen are a little bit of fatigue. There's a skin rash that happens with this, but this is not a hand-foot skin rash. It's more like an epidermal growth factor, acneiform type of skin rash that responds to topical treatment, topical steroids, and sometimes requires oral steroids. You can see low blood counts, particularly platelets and white count with as well as some mucositis and there's also a peculiar toxicity that happens in the toenails and fingernails where they get overgrown and there's a higher incidence of paronychia that develop probably some interference with nail growth other laboratory things are High triglycerides or high glucose because of the effect of TOR in the lipid metabolism and glucose metabolism pathway. Do you know
0: that it's a problem for a lot of people, you know, diabetics, I'd say about
1: 10 or 20% of people really get into significant trouble that require dose modifications. But for the most part, these things are manageable. The so one potential class side effect that happens in a minority of patients, but is something that we're going to watch very carefully to see whether it happens more frequently in the combination trials, is a pneumonitis, Hmm. which is developed in about 6% of patients in the phase 2 trial. The longer you're on, the more likely it's going to develop. And we're not sure exactly what causes it. In the six patients who had it in the phase 2 trial, Four were able to restart therapy, and two had a recurrence, and two did not. I know that this type of side effect is being seen with other TOR inhibitors and remains to be seen whether schedule and dose are important and whether that toxicity will be enhanced by combining a TOR inhibitor with a VEGF receptor inhibitor.
0: What about the issue of brain mets in these agents?
1: Patients with CNS metastases have been excluded from the clinical trials, and so we really don't know about the activity of these agents in the central nervous system. Although, now that these drugs are available, patients with CNS metastases have been started to be treated with these, and it appears that at least the oral TKIs are safe in that population, and we're seeing anecdotal reports of response. So as long as the CNS disease is controlled, I think it shouldn't be an absolute exclusion towards trying these agents, and it's possible that you may see benefit.
0: Have bleeds been seen with these agents, including bevacizumab with renal cell?
1: Certainly bevacizumab in renal cancer is associated with bleeding, but not necessarily CNS bleeding. There have been nosebleeds and GI bleeding and things like that that have been seen. What about bleeding in the, the tumor cancer?
0: sites as is seen in lung cancer?
1: Well, we don't know whether all these sites are tumor sites or not, but they are patients who have their renal tumors in place, their primary tumors, and we've seen hematuria enhanced mm-hmm. in that setting, particularly with bevacizumab, which has this long half-life, and therefore when you start seeing bleeding, it takes a long time to get the drug mm-hmm. out of your system as opposed to the oral TKIs, which have half-lives. Of a day or two, and when you stop the drug, you pretty much take off the block on the receptor pathway. So I would be a little more nervous about using bevacizumab in patients with CNS metastases compared to sunitinib or seraphinib.
0: But no major bleeds into tumors have been reported with these agents?
1: Not life threatening hemoptysis as was seen in squamous cell cancers of the lung. But I think there have been significant bleeds that have happened. We've had patients in the intensive care Hmm. unit because of nosebleeds or because of... Really? Nosebleeds? Right. Or because of hematuria. But Hmm. I think those are rare events. So I think with regard to treatment, CNS metastases, I think it's reasonable to consider and probably safer to choose TKIs than bevacizumab at the moment.
0: What about cytoreductive surgery in the primary tumor? Where are we with that?
1: Well, there are two phase trials that were conducted in the 1990s looking at patients who presented them with primary tumor in place, randomizing them to either interferon alone or cytoreductive nephrectomy followed by interferon, and both were very positive in favor of cytoreductive nephrectomy followed by interferon. We're not sure what the reason for that improvement in survival is, whether the cytoreductive nephrectomy in and of itself was therapeutic or whether it predisposed patients to benefit from interferon either by reducing the tumor-associated immunosuppression or the angiogenic drive that is a consequence of the bulky primary. So because of that, in patients where it is feasible, it's become the standard of care to take patients who present with stage four disease and do a cytoreductive nephrectomy prior to systemic therapy. Whether that approach paradigm translates into the VEGF receptor-targeted therapies remains to be determined. Certainly, the mechanism of enhancing or reducing tumor-associated immune suppression, if that's the mechanism by which reductive nephrectomy provides benefit, would not necessarily apply to something that targets the VEGF receptor pathway. And so what we've been saying is that if it's a good candidate for reductive nephrectomy, in other words, the bulk of the tumor is in the primary, there is limited metastatic burden, particularly a metastatic burden that is in lungs or lymph nodes, not symptomatic in bone or in liver, that a cytoreductive nephrectomy is a reasonable thing to do. But in patients with small primary tumors and extensive metastatic burden, that it would be reasonable to just start them on a TKI first line. And one would anticipate that If you saw tumor shrinkage in the metastatic lesions, you'd probably see tumor shrinkage in the primary, and that the primary tumor is not going to be the cause of progression or morbidity or mortality in that patient population.
0: Last thing I want to ask you about is adjuvant therapy and the future of adjuvant therapy. Of course, this, as you mentioned, is being studied in a randomized trial. I'm curious, first of all, how do you think the side effects are going to sit with patients taking these agents for a year? And any guesses what you think we're going to see in terms of survival and efficacy?
1: Well, that's a really difficult question. And I have to say that it's important to do the trial because we could be surprised about the answers. But let me give you at least my views up front. I think we've seen in other diseases that things that work in the advanced disease setting are more potent in the adjuvant setting. And so it's certainly worth pursuing these drugs in the adjuvant setting in kidney cancer. The adjuvant trial is difficult to do in kidney cancer because you want to make sure you get the patient population that has the appropriate risk onto the trial. They have to have a high enough risk in order to make the toxicity worth tolerating. And they have to have a high enough risk in order to show reduction of risk with the smallest number of patients. Unfortunately, from a trial standpoint, the higher risk patients are less frequent than the lower risk patients. And so this trial is going to be heavily influenced by the balance of patients that are enrolled. If a lot of low risk patients are enrolled, it may be harder to see a benefit. And the toxicity may be harder for people to deal with because if you have a 10 or 20% risk of relapse, have an 80 or 90% chance of being cured, you're probably less willing to tolerate side effects than if you're 50 to 70% likely to recur. So people are going to have side effects on these drugs. They're going to know, for the most part, whether they're taking the drug or the placebo. That's going to be an issue for people both on the placebo and on the drugs because those on the placebo may wonder whether they're really getting anything and those on the drugs are going to know they're getting things and wonder whether it's really worth it. And so hopefully we'll be able to get people through a year of therapy or majority of people through a year of therapy and formally ask the question whether a year of therapy is useful in preventing recurrence. That remains to be seen. That's a big trial. It's a lot of accrual needed in a population that medical oncologists don't usually see, and so we need our urology colleagues to step up and either refer these patients or be active in the trial in order to get it done in a timely fashion. And then I think that if the right population is in the trial and they take the treatment, it's almost guaranteed that these drugs will delay progression, delay relapse, then we'll have to figure out whether that's a clinically meaningful endpoint for that patient population because it's really then a timing issue, whether treating everybody ahead of time and delaying relapse in a patient population is useful compared to waiting until they relapse and treating them at the time of relapse is a question I think we'll have debates about after this trial is done, and I think the real issue will turn on whether anybody's disease is cured by treating them early or whether you're just delaying the time until they develop some sort of resistance and progression. And we need to see the results of the study to know that. This
0: concludes our program. Special thanks to our speakers and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Renal Cell Cancer Update.